This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. If you, like me, love reading Graham Davidson and his writing on urban and cultural history, his latest book should definitely be on your summer reading list. It's called City Dreamers, the Urban Imagination in Australia, and it draws on Graham's lifetime of work and looks at Australian cities through the eyes of the curious and of the dreamers. And it's really great to have you, Graham. Um, Morning, welcome, Carly. Welcome to Triple R. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. And we should just start with, with the title, really. I mean, what role do those with imaginations have in our city? Um, as opposed to the economists and the, um, yeah. I suppose, the people that like concrete. <laughs> well, I, I, I wrote this book really because I wanted to celebrate those people who've had an imaginative vision of the Australian city. Much of our discussion about cities these days is dominated, as you said, by economics and pragmatics. And I really wanted to say it's very important for us to have that sense of creative and imaginative connection with our cities. And I think that's, that's true. I, you go around the city, around the world. I've just recently come back from visiting Barcelona and Helsinki, among other cities. And you find wherever you go, you go into the bookshops and there's rows of books now that are really celebrating people's sense of connection with their cities. Um, and that's true of Melbourne too, isn't it? I mean, a few years ago we had the Encyclopedia of Melbourne, which was a great celebration of, of our history and of the kind of connections we have with city. And we've, um, and that's very important for us, I think. Um, and, I mean, most of us live in cities, really. I yeah. mean, we're a very urban place, Australia, and yet, I mean, you know, I've grown up on a diet of the red centre, the bush and yeah. the farm. Yeah. And, I mean, do you think that's shifting? I'm, sh- I'm sure it is shifting. It's where I be- in a way where I began thinking about this 50 years ago, I was, I was bothered, really, by this paradox that we were a highly urban country and yet when we thought about where the real Australia was, it was somewhere other than where we lived. And that seemed to me to be a rather sad condition to be in. And it led me in my first stage of my life when I was a young undergraduate, I began to study in a city, Melbourne. I went, I went to Richmond um, and I spent time walking the streets of Richmond, um, uh, sitting in the council offices. In those days, it was dominated by the old Wren machine, you know. And I listened to the gossip. Um, I walked the streets, and one day I had a walking down Docker Street, Richmond, and I had an old car with, with which I had to keep maintaining. And I was walking along the street, taking photographs, and a, fell, a couple of young blokes in a car came alongside me and before I knew what had happened they jumped out and grabbed me and put me in the back seat and it turned out these were the Richmond CIB and they thought that I was casing the joints and I remember the <laughs> fellow saying to me and what are you doing and I said I'm doing historical research and he kind of with a disbelieving look he said and how long have you been on this caper well <laughs> I've been on the caper for 50 years now but uh, it, it, it was part of my sense that I needed to understand our cities and why they were important and what was um, and what uh, visions people had about it and and interestingly in, in this book I could I talk about the people who were responsible for generating the bushland engine people like Banjo Patterson and Henry Lawson and I argue there that uh, these people uh, despite the fact that they celebrated the bush they were actually city dwellers mm. most of the time and their vision of the bush was largely formed in reaction against what they thought was problematical and bad about their cities so I think we've had this long kind of alternation haven't we in Australian consciousness between the bush and the city um, uh, many of the people who even who wrote about the bush 
Um, and who, even down to Don Watson in his latest book about the bush, Don Watson's return to the city. I understand. I mean, he, he's really a, he's really an urban person now. But we have, the, and quite rightly, we we learn important things from our engagement with the bush. But we also have to recognise that the cities are where we really live. Has that, I guess, lack of mythologising around Australia's cities throughout our history been uh, due to kind of a sense of inferiority that they're not or haven't been? as good as the kind of European cities that they were modelled on originally? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's what happened. And often it was put upon us by visitors. So D.H. Lawrence comes in the early 1920s and he looks at Sydney and he says, this is really, this is really a, a, a city that's trying to be London but not really making it. Um, it looks as though it's just grown up in five minutes. It has no depth, you know, it has no sense of historical because, depth. Because London has such harbour views as that? No, it has nothing like the harbour I understand what he means. I mean, there is a sense in living in London where you're consciousness of, of a long history. I want to really say that by now, after 200 years, and even more now after we're conscious of 40,000 years of Aboriginal settlement in this country there's a deep history of our cities as well and we're beginning to discover it so um some of the best recent writing about our cities like grace carskin's wonderful book on sydney called the colony um are rediscovering the the interrelationship between aboriginal history and european history in the early years and we now incorporate that don't we more in our, our ways of celebrating the city so we have birrung ma and we have dream time at the gym and and bangaroo in sydney these are all ways in which we're trying as it were to reintegrate an, un, an understanding of a different kind of dreaming the Aboriginal dreaming in in our broader understanding of it. So, so the dreamers that I mostly write about in this book, of course, are people from the European tradition. But it's all those people, whether they happen to be, and they embrace journalists, photographers, planners, doctors, a whole range of people who've had a, a sense of imaginative connection with their cities. And Graham, where do you go for your research? Obviously you do on-the-ground research yourself and mm. take photographs, but where else do you get your um, inspiration, I suppose? Well, I talk to people a lot. I mean, I've, that's one of the things I've learned over the years. I, I realised when I first began to, as a historian, I had this idea that the history was all in the documents. And the reason I was in the Richmond Town Hall... Um, copying out those documents was that I thought that's where the evidence lay and all that gossip that I was hearing in the room next door I thought I was just being interesting gossip but not really part of history now I'm much more inclined to take the gossip seriously mm. uh, and to listen and talk to people so a lot of the work that I've done in recent years has been based on you know what we generally call oral history um, I go to the documents I I the other thing I learned uh, when I first began, I thought it was all in words and not in pictures. And I had to educate myself to read the, the city visually. And I learned a lot sitting beside architects and planners who are much more trained to do that than I was. So, um, so I, it, Mark Bloch, the great French historian, said, anything can be evidence for the historian. Mm. You know, it can, be, it can be anything as mundane as the size of a field uh, or it can be um, objects, it can be um, oral memory. Anything can 
anything that enables us to reconstruct the past as evidence. And I'm really interested in the way you structured the book because it's not so much a chronological history of the way that Australia's cities were imagined, but it's grouped into, I mean, different categories of people, I suppose, who have had different ideas about what the city could be and what it was at that time. And and that includes, uh, it's a long list, but artists, scientists, slummers, snobs, suburbanites, anti-suburbans, poets, pessimists, exodists, motorists, moderns, planners, nationalists and cosmopolitans. A lot of different groups. You can think of all of those as being like windows, if you like, mm. uh, on the past. So we, wh- one of the things we have to do, co- cities are very complex, aren't they? Um, and it's very hard for us to take them all in. It's a bit like, you know, the old parable of the blind man and the elephant. They all get hold of a bit of it and then they think that the bit is the whole. So we are constantly doing that. Um, and so these are, are little windows on the city they register an important truth each of them but they're only part of the the truth so what i wanted to do was to investigate suppose we're looking at the city from the uh, from the top uh the snobs view uh (laughs) compare that with the look of of the city from below and I, i i show that in many of the people who for example wanted to look at the city from below who imaginatively identified with the people who were suffering in one way or another in the city were the people who had in their own experience uh, had some experience of suffering, some spent sense of alienation. So they bring that to their observation of the city. Um, I mean, among the other people, I, there was a long debate for a long while, wasn't there, in Australia? It's this strong now. A lot of people were very worried about people going to the city. There was a big discussion about the drift to the city. Yeah, the exodus uh, and the, and from, the exodus. The, from, from the country right. and, and right. towns. And that's right. And, and in that chapter, I talk about the people who deplored it. And then I talk about Miles Franklin who, of course, is a person who sees escape from the countryside as being something that she wants. She go- so she goes off to Sydney and famously, of course, in her brilliant career goes bung. She gets to Sydney and she finds it's not all it's cracked up to be. But nonetheless, there are a whole generation of people, particularly in the early 20th century, who saw coming to the city as as the, the destination for them it represented freedom in many ways from for women particularly by the way i mean many women growing up in the country what did they have to look forward to unless the, unless a uh, a school teacher or another farmer came along to rescue them by marriage they didn't have a lot to look forward to and so um going to the going to the city was often the means of escape for them mm. we're talking about those with imagination uh in urban australia and i mean there's lots to we could talk to you about graham but i wonder if we can sort of talk about the kind of different influences on melbourne i mean we're seeing a lot more high-rise in mm. melbourne and you don't see that in european cities so much that's more of an asian city or an american city thing and i wonder how you see that sort of range of influences i suppose impacting on mm. our Mm. I think, I think uh, it's a rather polarised debate we've got at the moment, isn't it, between people who say, who are advocates of, of the traditional advocates of the suburbs, and there's a degree of resistance to change, isn't there, coming from people who don't want the suburbs to change, and on the other hand, people who are advocates of, of compact city, who often, in, in their mind, it becomes equated. I noticed there was an article in the paper uh, just at the weekend, uh, talk, Tim Colbatch talking about what's happening to Box Hill, a place that's close to me, where there's a 30-storey skyscraper going up and people think of it. And in fact, most of the important change is really actually occurring in between those two extremes. The, the suburbs are actually being remade very substantially. I mentioned that I'd, I'd visited uh, Helsinki and Barcelona recently and they're two cities that I think are really interesting. They're cities smaller than Melbourne, uh, between one and two million people. 
Um, but they're uh, quite compact by Melbourne standards, but nothing much above about six or seven storeys. So there's a very little real high-rise, but there's very little that equates to what we think of as suburban, and they're both, in their way, extremely successful Mm. cities. I mean, Barcelona in particular, I think, is a city with an extraordinary culture of care and uh, for for its physical fabric. Um, uh, It's one one of the things I really took away. was not so much that I... If I visit another city, I don't come back with a recipe for what we should do in (laughs) Melbourne, but I often come away with a sense of what's important about that culture. And that's what I noticed about Barcelona is this extraordinary sense of investment of its citizens in the quality of of the urban environment. Do we have, um, in your view, enough people thinking imaginatively about our cities? I mean, Melbourne as an example currently? Well, I'm... I, I think there are many people who are. I mean, there are many good signs. Uh, there's, there's some very, very able younger people now who are engaged in thinking about the future of our cities. Uh, the group of younger urbanists at RMIT with uh, Michael Buxton and co have just published a very interesting book on Melbourne planning. I mean, those are an interesting group. Brendan Gleeson and his group at Melbourne University. So there's, the, among the academics, there's some, uh, among the younger architects, I think there's some really um, uh, innovative thinking. Uh, on the other hand, I think that there's, in some ways, the way in which we organise our cities is, is we're, we're rubbing up against some real difficulties. One of the problems I, I keep coming back to is that um, in, in, a, in our, the government of our cities is highly fragmented. Um, we have state governments, we have local governments, we have nothing that approximates to the kind of metropolitan government that's common in say London or in in, um, in Toronto or many of the other big cities in the world and that's a, that's a disadvantage to us because there's no kind of obvious arena in which we can actually bring um, our dreaming towards a, a point of political decision um, and I think also a, a lot of planning which was once I think the end of the 19th century I think you know your your regular guest David Nichols was one of the people who reminds us of the utopian element in planning and uh and i think that's um that's a bit missing in some ways now i think that a lot of planning is really it's statutory planning it's the application of rules um people need a degree of certainty about how the world works so that's that's fine but it makes it harder i think to uh, find ways of expressing the more imaginative approach to cities. Yeah, and I think also, Graham, I mean, something we've spoken to Dave about over many years is affordability in our cities yeah. and the impact that has because... And, I mean, it's led a lot of people to... Not just that, but it led a lot of people to fall out of love with the suburbs um, yeah. because of commute times and <clears throat> and the size of houses is quite derided as well because some of them are quite large. And so yeah. we're, we're really seeing a change there, aren't we? With Well, the city, I mean, there are lots of things happening. I mean, we're, our cities are getting more overbuilt in one way or another. So there's less and less of the... Of, of, there are fewer and fewer backyards, if we can put it that way. But a lot of the backyards are now being occupied not by multi-unit development, but by what, to my mind, are extraordinarily large and even gross individual family homes so you know the so-called mcmansion which has um is more is probably consuming more energy um internally than its occupants are uh, expending by transport and so on so there's there's some paradoxes in wrapped up in that um so the suburbs i think uh, there's still 
in, in my mind, there's still some value in our suburbs. In any case, um, we're not going to suddenly change and become a city like Barcelona or Helsinki. We're going to have to find a path away from the highly dispersed kind of cities we are towards a more sustainable kind of form. And that may mean re-engineering our suburbs um, and re-engineering our transport systems so that they actually work much better and more affordably. Um, you mentioned, I mean, affordability is something that I think is absolutely critical. Well, it is. Mm. And I wonder, I mean, I mean, you, this book is City Dreamers, and I wonder if we spend so much time, don't we, talking about the, the school crisis we have, there's not enough of them, and about infrastructure, we can't decide on what we're yeah. going to build and things like yeah. that. We're, we're really bogged down, but can you be bogged down and dream at the same time, do you think? Oh, I think you have to be. And I mean, I, I think unless, well, the word I used before about Barcelona is, is care. And I think unless we care about our cities, unless we have a, a strong emotional investment in them, then we don't really begin to have the motivation to work up against the things that are resisting change. So I think that's, that's extremely important. I think it's important too, though, to recognise the value that might be built into what we've already got. So we don't readily throw away what's valuable in, in a, a given structure, but we think about how we can actually make it work better for us. Thank you so much for coming to Triple R. Um, Graham Davison, his book is City Dreamers, The Urban Imagination in Australia, and it's um, out through um, South Books. New it? South. New South Books. Yes. And uh, get your hands on it. And if you know people that are um, keen on these topics, I, I, I said at the beginning that it's um, a good one for the summer reading list because it's beautifully written. And congratulations and thanks for coming to Triple R. Thank you, Carly. Talking about the future of journalism and of news, how will the role of journalists change in an era where making a living from writing the news is getting harder? And what about storytelling? How will this continue to evolve? These are just some of the kinds of questions that will be tackled at the next news new news event at the Wheeler Centre running for three days in late October. It's brought to us by the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne and Dr Margaret Simons joins us. She's the director there and it's really great to have you in. And Thank uh, you. I understand you've been running these for seven years, uh, these new news events, so I imagine the event themselves have, have changed. Well, absolutely. I mean, when the new news was launched seven years ago, um, it was then by Swinburne University in partnership with the Public Interest Journalism Foundation. And we knew that enormous changes were happening to the way news was presented, the way journalism was supported. We knew that more change was ahead. And in that sense, nothing's changed. <laughs> <laughs> All, uh, an enormous amount of change has happened over those seven years and there is more change ahead. And it's been both good and bad. Um, it's an incredibly... I ex- uh, don't want to quote the Prime Minister, but it's an incredibly exciting time to be a journalist and yet also daunting and frightening in many ways for both yeah. journalists and citizens. So I imagine... I mean, we, we know that people are less prepared to, to pay for news and that uh, many journalists are, are earning less now than they used to earn as well. And I wonder... I mean, that together with digital technology there yeah, like you say there is um both negatives and and positives well that's right i mean in many ways we've got better tools for storytelling than ever before um and yet the business model which has supported for example the age the herald sun you know your traditional old media and television news um has really been put under strain to the point of breaking so in the old days my salary when i worked at the age was paid by the classified advertising um who looks at classified ads these days um and so that's why you've seen massive redundancies at our mainstream or legacy media companies on the other side 
um, in the last three or four years, we've had numerous new new media-based players in the Australian um, ecosystem. So we've got The Guardian in Australia, we have BuzzFeed in Australia, we have The Huffington Post in Australia, which is in partnership with Fairfax, The Daily Mail, um, and now The New York Times is talking about launching here. Um, so whereas we used to have the most concentrated media ownership in the world, we now have some diversity coming in, and that, I think, has to be a positive. Um, so the pace of change hasn't slackened at all, and I guess every year with the new news, it's not an industry conference and it's not an academic conference. The reason we do it in partnership with the Wheeler Centre is we're trying to reach the people who matter most, which is the audience for journalism and engage citizens generally. And one of the other developments over the past um, five to ten years has been the, the upsurge in enrolments in journalism courses and the creation of, of um, in some cases, whole new uh, faculties for journalism at particular universities. And many journalists are finding employment in universities having worked in the the news sector. Is the tertiary sector playing a much larger role in the broader media landscape than it ever has previously? Oh yes, absolutely. As the big newsrooms shrink, uh, they do less training. The sort of mentorship, which I was very lucky to get as a young journalist, isn't happening to the same extent. I wouldn't want to say it doesn't happen at all, because it certainly does. But um, you know, formal training programs, cadet programs and so on, have both shrunk and also are a bit more chaotic, I guess, in the mainstream newsrooms. And so university training and education for journalists has become increasingly important and also universities along with a lot of other institutions don't think of themselves as media organisations but they're actually becoming media organisations in many ways. Um, my own university for example puts out Pursuit which uh, talks about the university's research um, uh, the conversation is funded by universities and is putting out um, research making a real contribution but universities aren't alone in that you see NGOs of all sorts um, all sorts of players who have web pages and are using that media presence and as a result of that the job market is actually very lively it's a, it's a misconception to think that there aren't jobs out there for journalism graduates in fact I think it's lively as lively as I've ever seen it in my career. Um, but yes, at the same time, you have the legacy media companies making many people redundant. That tends to be, you know, the older journalists, people like me. Um, but for new graduates who are multi-skilled, who can handle a video camera, who can do audio, who can write, um, who can handle social media from a journalistic point of view, that's a very lively job market. And I mean, it's interesting that your event uh, focuses on readers or consumers of, of, of news and, and media because in many ways uh, we need to be smarter and more savvy, don't we? Because we, we have to choose between what is independent media and what is native content and advertising mm. content and the like. And, and I imagine that's going to be a discussion at the event coming up. Absolutely. The boundaries between, if you like, enlightened public relations and journalism are blurry. Now, that's not a new issue. It always, it always has been the case. Um, but, uh, but yes, it's newly urgent. If you have the ANZ Bank, for example, um, or the AFL running a newsroom and producing content which is presented as journalism. Now, you know, it's not complete bollocks. I mean, you can read really good news about AFL on the AFL's own website, uh, but you're probably not going to see the Essendon drug scandal broken on that website. So, um, 
you know, it's interesting to look at what we're gaining in journalism and what we're losing in journalism or what we're at risk of losing. And it raises a question of quality as well. And, I mean, there's, there's many events happening as part of this conference, but just some of them are um, issues around the reporting of violence against women and reporting of Islam, which um, are issues that, um, you know, have huge consequences if we don't get that right and, and have um, misconceptions out there in, in the daily media. Is quality um, a bigger issue than it was previously or are, are we kind of pretty good given the, the greater diversification of media in Australia? I think quality is always an issue and, and that's the reason my centre is called the Centre for Advancing Journalism. We're trying to take it forward to make it better, to use these new storytelling skills to improve it. Um, now, again, you know, it's always a mixed picture. It's always hard to say that, uh, that things are getting... Uh, better or worse. One of the reasons we're interesting, interested in reporting of violence against women, which is one of the areas of research for the centre I run, is because that does seem to be an area in which the media has made leaps and bounds in the last few years in improving the reporting. It is actually one of the biggest stories in Australia, the biggest crime story, the biggest human rights story, um, a massive economic story and a health story as well. And yet, if you cast back even three or four years ago, it was hardly there at all as a social issue. Mm-hmm. What you did get is the occasional ghastly report of a homicide or something of that sort. And that has shifted, I think. Um, I hope it's a long-standing shift. We're also running a, a, a workshop on the reporting of Islam, which is free to all comers, as well as a panel session talking about how Islam is reported. And I guess that's one benefit of having um, enhanced journalism faculties within universities for that level of reflection and, and analysis that maybe traditional newsrooms didn't have the time or potentially the interest in investing in. I think that's always the case. When you're on the daily news cycle, as I have been myself, um, time for reflection, well, it just doesn't happen. It's certainly at a premium. And um, and that is an important role for universities. While we're about practical education for journalists, we're also about creating reflective practitioners. And you need that if you want to be able to cope with change. The practitioner who can't reflect on what the core of the profession is, what the things are that actually matter... Um, is not going to survive at a time of rapid change. Mm. And I know you've got to get going, but I wonder, I mean, Michelle Guthrie, the new head of the ABC, is a keynote at this conference coming up. And I wonder, I mean, in many ways, the ABC is an an innovator and it's also legacy as well. And I wonder what you see as the the role of the ABC in this uh, evolving media landscape. I think the ABC uh, has never been more important, really, and that's a big claim because it's always been important. Um, I think from just confining to journalism, let alone all of its other outputs across drama and culture, um, I think at one level it acts as a guarantee that we will have some consistent basic news coverage at a time when legacy media is declining. But it also has the capacity to innovate in a way that it's very difficult for stock market-based news companies to do. Um, And I'll be really interested. It's one of her first public addresses in Melbourne. I think it actually might be the first in Melbourne. Certainly one of the first. Um, I'll be very interested to hear the managing director's take on what's needed in terms of innovation at the ABC and what her priorities will be. But if I can just talk briefly about the rest of the program, we've um, we've got Emily Bell from Columbia University as one of the world's leading thinkers on journalism. She's giving the A.N. Smith Lecture in Journalism at the university to kick off the conference. Um, we've also got a session on how to pitch to an editor, which will be interesting to, I think, to a lot of uh, the wannabe uh, freelancers and journalists um, around the place. We'll be talking about why journalism matters, reporting on research about you know, what we are losing and gaining during this time of enormous change. 
and so much more more than i can possibly talk about <laughs> yeah this. it's very extensive there's yeah. something like 20 events or something yeah. going on uh, at the wheeler center the new news of, um, event uh is coming your way 27th to the 29th of october and if you want to book for that you need to head to the wheeler center website and it's been really great to um speak with you margaret and it's nearly uh, all free as well yeah say. that's yeah. right it is uh, and uh dr margaret simons is director of the center for advancing journalism at the university of melbourne we'll catch you again soon lovely thanks very much thanks I'm going to head to the Philippines now. We don't do that on this program very often, or I don't think we have before, but we really should do that more, especially as the first five months of the new Philippine president's term has been bloody and controversial. Um, president Rodrigo Duterte's policy of war on drugs is popular with voters, but has led to the extrajudicial killings of uh, reported um, numbers of 3,000 people thus far. Uh, and there's lots going on there um, with regards to relationships with the US and China and and uh, it's complicated and I think a lot of us in Australia don't know uh, much about the Philippines and its politics and Nicole Curato luckily um, follows this and uh, she's joined us from the University of Canberra to speak about the Philippines and it's really great to have you Nicole and I think um, news reports in Australia make it sound very shocking what's happening in the Philippines but I wonder if you could uh, let us know um, perhaps the sense of on the ground um, what, what is happening there politically. Right. Well, first of all, good morning, and thanks for taking interest in the subject. And you're right, um, the drug war in the Philippines has taken a lot of international attention. And I think, aside from the killings that's been happening, the language of President Rodrigo Duterte has also invited a lot of interest, because it's colorful, it's vulgar, it's out of the ordinary. But recently, I think there's some, we can take some comfort with the data um, that recent polls have, um, have seen, and one of the most revealing developments when it comes to the data is that even though 84% of the population consider themselves satisfied um, with a campaign against illegal drugs, so that's excellent in survey terms, um, we noted that 71% of the population also say that it is important to keep the drug uh, suspects alive. So to me, that's an important development in terms of the research in the field because it's always common to say that, or it, there is an impression that there's an overwhelming support for the drug war to the point that um, the population supports the killings. But the data doesn't say that. The data basically says that, yes, people think the drug war is important, but no, you don't, they, they don't condone the killings. We have to keep the suspects alive. So to me, that's an important um, nuance that we have to bring in the conversation. Absolutely. And I mean, Rodrigo Duterte has been president for not all that long, a bit over 100 days. Can you give us a bit of a, a background in how he came to power and, and the nature of his uh, campaign and, and policy for combating drugs in the Philippines? Right. Um, I closely followed the campaign, and in my fieldwork in the Philippines, I actually shadowed some of his supporters in one of the um, disaster-affected communities in the Philippines. I think the last time the Philippines made it to the headlines was in 2013, when there was a big um, typhoon that devastated um, a cluster of islands in central Philippines. So I looked at these vulnerable communities and the extent of support they had um, with uh, Rodrigo Duterte. And part of the reason why the support is just so overwhelming is because people were able to make a distinction between talk and action. I think it's pretty common, not just in the Philippines, but for a lot of political contexts, to basically reject politicians that are that's all talk. And obviously Duterte is not the most articulate um, presidential character uh, who ran for president um, early this year. Um, in fact, he came up against the more established politicians that have been um, on the national scene for a long time, whereas he is 
a mayor of a progressive um, city in the south. Um, but what's important about his narrative is that he is a, a very effective mayor of a city that used to be the murder capital of the Philippines, and he was able to turn it around um, by making some adjustments and reforms with common sense governance. So he was able to offer that. So when I was looking at the disaster-affected communities, they remember how um, Rodrigo Duterte was able to um, bring in support to them very quietly, no media, no fanfare. He was able to bring in his world-class emergency response service, um, which is now being replicated in the entire country. And they appreciate that. They appreciate the empathy. They appreciate the sincerity and the distinction between talk and action. So a lot of the support really is coming from that. That's probably why, to editorialize a bit, I think, it's also the reason why some people are more forgiving every time there's, um, there's something that the president says that is unacceptable. I mean, of course, there is a sense of discomfort, but ultimately um, there is this weighing or assessment between what he says and what he does. And, I mean, to, to speak a little bit more about what he has done, I mean, his, his experience in politics in the Philippines goes back decades at the local level but it is unusual for somebody to come from that level I understand to then go into the national level politics and in the Philippines has had sort of dynasties of political actors uh, at the national level but is he part of that or is he is he really a contrast to what has come before? Yes, this is actually very interesting because in the technical sense of the world, he, word, he actually has perpetuated his own dynasty. So he is the president of the Philippines now, but the person who replaced him as mayor is his daughter. And then the vice mayor is his son. So he has his own um, dynasty going on in the technical sense of the word. But in terms of action, I mean, in the Philippines, when you talk about political dynasties, we're talking about families that are deeply entrenched, um, not just politically, but economically. So you see them, you see that in their lifestyle. You see that on, you know, the lavish lifestyle that these um, dynasties have. But the Teretas family is a bit different in the sense that they have this reputation of being simple, of being approachable to the public. And when I was in Davao City, um, where he was mayor for uh, a long time, um, a couple of weeks ago, I, I see that, that the love for the, for the, the Terita family is just overwhelming, um, precisely because of that, because of their approachability and sincerity. So yeah, just to answer your question, yes, technically he is part of a dynasty. He has perpetuated his own dynasty, but in practice, it feels like his dynasty is different from the pejorative label that dynasties have received in the Philippines. And uh, as you alluded to earlier, Nicole, he's used incredibly uh, strong and, and violent language uh, in the context of the campaign he's waging against uh, drug traffickers and drug users. He's said reportedly that he'd happily slaughter three million drug users in the Philippines. And I think um, the most recent statistics I've read is that there's upwards of, I think, 3,600 people who have so far been killed, killed since he's been president. Do we know who exactly is being targeted and, and, and who's been murdered? Right. Actually, that's one of the more difficult um, numbers to interpret because the numbers are just varying depending who's counting. Um, some would say that most of these killings are not actually sponsored by the state because there is the impression that it's actually um, the president who orders the police to just shoot all of the drug pushers that they can see um, if, if they're um, resisting arrest. So there is that a chunk of, of people who were killed because of that. But another interpretation is that's just a small part of it. A big part of it is actually um, criminal syndicates killing each other, trying to cover their tracks. 
Um, of course, that's plain murder, and that is disturbing figure. Um, but you're right. Um, the figure has been very alarming, regardless who's doing the killings. But on the part of the police, um, especially now that the chief of police is just one of the most charming, media-savvy person, he's really representing the police well for the population, saying that he will make an investigation um, for, for these killings, because it is murder. And I think, I mean, what what is really fascinating about what's happening at the moment in the Philippines is also what's happening in that broader region with um, uh, negotiations with China, if that's how we can put it, um, regarding the, the South China Sea. And I wonder, with Duterte now uh, president of the Philippines, what are we likely to see, do you think, um, with the relationships to the region? Right. That's, yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, foreign policy is not really uh, my field of expertise, but one of the more um, popular interpretations of what's going on here is that this government is a very pragmatic government. So, for example, the relationship with China that has bothered some people can be interpreted from the lens that, well, this is a government who wants investments. This is a government who wants to um, put forward economic progress over other things. So maybe the calculation with the relationship with China is not really a matter of uh, independent foreign policy as he's making it to look like, you know, to, to kind of break off those ties with the United States that has, you know, which, which the Philippines has had a very strong relationship in the past because of the colonial ties. But really what's governing the logic here would be, yeah, the pragmatism underpinning um, the Duterte presidency. And, I mean, you mentioned that uh, there's, I suppose, nuances to the types of um, opinion polls that have been done so far in terms of Duterte's popularity and also the willingness of people to be on board with a, with a strong kind of anti-drugs campaign. Ha- has there developed, I mean, I know he's only been in power for a short space of time, but has there developed any kind of opposition to the, um, you know, perceived indiscriminate killings that have happened so far in the Philippines since he's been in power? Yes, I'm glad you raised that because I think one of the more disturbing developments um, as far as um, the opposition is concerned is because there has been a systematic um, discrediting of people who are opposing the drug war. So, for example, this is best symbolized by uh, a senator, an opposition senator, um, Leila de Lima, and she has um, she was the committee chair of the Justice Committee in the Senate that launched the investigations. And then, because she is in the minority, um, the senators who are allied with the president took her out of the committee as chair, and they conducted the investigations themselves and led to the conclusion that, yep, this is not particularly a problem. The state is not liable for all the killings. So, in a way, what's worth monitoring here, without necessarily sounding the alarm bells just yet, but what's worth monitoring here is how the opposition um, can consolidate and um, and call the government into account everything, something wrong is happening. Because sometimes it can get a bit scary because they, they just... Took down this this senator. I mean, there were lots of misogynistic attacks against her. Um, there were lots of systematic attacks in media against her as well, just to discredit her reputation as a senator. And I think for a lot of people who are also critical in the drug war, when they express these concerns on social media, some of the Duterte supporters have also been equally angry and equally confrontational to the point that some people don't want to speak up anymore. But I think that's not yet, we can't say, though, that there's a crackdown on the opposition. It's really just 
a development of a sense that when you speak up, be ready to defend your views because um, the supporters are just ready to attack you. And I, I um, understand that Duterte has quite large majorities in, um, well, has a majority in, in, in both houses in the Philippines. Maybe tell us a little bit about the, the way that the government is at the moment and I suppose how strong that opposition voice might be in, in the coming years. Right, that's a fair point. I think we have to make a distinction between the opposition, the formal opposition that is that is in government, versus the opposition that we see um, in the in the public sphere. Because in the government, you're right. Um, in Congress, in the lower house, he has a super majority. In the Senate, there are very few opposition voices there. I think three senators are just vocal against him in a seat uh, in, in a house of 24 people. Um, this will become even more disturbing or not disturbing but challenging when we talk about um, big reforms that the president wants to implement so for example um, he wants to shift the system of government to a federal system that requires a lot of intensive systematic and meaningful debates but if the opposition is not particularly ready um, to critique the president's proposal, then we may just have a constitution um, that's railroaded, right? And obviously we don't want that. But that is a limited view, though, if we only look at governance and equate it to what's going on in government. Because one of the great things about Philippine democracy is that it has a vibrant public sphere. So if we look at how the constitutional changes are now being debated, there's also a lot of involvement from people from the academe who have a qualified support for the president, people from civil society, people from the left who are also part of this um, of this government or who are supportive of the government. So I guess um, the message here is there's a lot of nuance, there's a lot of weighing and debate that's going on um, outside government and trying to secure influence um, within government. So again, it's worth monitoring how the opposition um, will react or how there will be new uh, members of the opposition when it comes to issues. I think it will be more of, um, more of that configuration. The opposition will be issue-based instead of just having a more consistent opposition that's just um, critiquing the government all the time. And there's been tension at the international level as well. I understand the international criminal court has warned that Duterte could face prosecution and um, he sort of came uh, to blows with President Obama in the US as well and, and came out sort of very strongly against his condemnation of the sorts of killings that were happening. Are we likely to see the, the international community, I guess, um, engaging with Philippines in a, on, a, on a different way if these sorts of killings continue as part of the war on drugs? Yes, it's very hard to say, but you're right. Um, the ICC prosecutor said that she was um, deeply concerned um, about the killings, and it's hard to kind of get a, a firm government commitment whether they can invite all of these independent investigators to, to look at uh, the drug war. Um, I think it, when, I, when I read the news, it feels like the government position on, um, on letting the international community in changes um, by the day, so I don't know what's the latest now. But I think as far as um, the relationship of the international community is concerned, I think I would rely more on the importance of um, of the entire region in terms of cooperating um, in, in the crackdown against the war on drugs. Because obviously one of the reasons why this is a big problem is because this is part of a transnational issue. So, for example, when Duterte relates with China, one of the things that he's saying is, okay, help us build rehabilitation centers. Um, because, you know, part of the reason why there's a lot of drugs coming in the Philippines is because there's supply coming from China. So a lot of um, local um, businessmen as well, for example, are trying to, um, how do you say that, change the way they relate to government by 
giving um, rehabilit- building rehabilitation centers as part of their social responsibility programs. So I think as far as the relationship with international business, international community is concerned, there is this um, focus as well on building the more um, rehabilitative side of the drug war. I always get asked, um, so what's the end game? Are we just going to see a lot of people dead and the international community will just turn a blind eye? I think one possibility or one opening here is to not particularly be confrontational about the president, not to attack the president, but present alternatives and offer support when it comes to building these rehabilitation centers and coming up with counterproposals on how this war can be made more humane, um, sustainable, and most importantly, um, evidence-based. Yeah, Nicole Carato is with us from the University of Canberra, and we're talking about uh, Philippine President uh, Duterte's war on drugs. And Nicole, while we've got you here, I wonder your views on the future of the Philippines' democracy. Um, Does Duterte, will he be a good influence on Philippine democracy? I, I know that the Philippines has known dictatorship in the past and has come a very long way from that and I I wonder what what you see coming with um, his years in that role. Right. Um, Yes, it's really double-edged because when I observed the elections um, last May, it's actually the first time that I've seen very, very poor people trying to invest their time and what little resources they have to support this presidential candidate. I personally did not vote for this president, but when I saw how inspired the people were to basically, I mean, these are communities who lost everything three years ago, but for them to find money to print a t-shirt that has the president's face in it and contrast that to the more systematic money politics in the Philippines, then this is, I think, inspiring. One of the academics in the Philippines calls this an electoral insurgency um, just because of the amount of support and the shock it brought to the Philippine elite that the people are willing to put their support on this leader. But now that we are on the first 100 days of this president, what I'm seeing here is, I think, a bigger debate in terms of the kind of democracy that the Philippines would like to have. Um, For the longest time, and part of this is because of the American colonial tradition, um, Philippine democracy has followed the more liberal model of protecting the individual rights, human rights, um, you know, the more standard liberal democratic model. But now there is a debate about the kind of democracy we want to have. Maybe we are looking for a more collectivist perspective of democracy. Maybe human rights, yes, that's important, but maybe we should put forward the idea of the common good first. So it's a debate that's interesting. It's a debate that's reminiscent of, you know, the, the big debate about Asian values. Are Asian democracies really democracies? Um, are there, uh, do we have a culture that demands a particular kind of democratic governance? I think we're having that debate now. And for a long time, we haven't had that debate um, precisely because of the, the liberal democratic legacy that we inherited from the Americans, which has resulted to the entrenchment of the elite. So again, it's hard to speculate what's going to happen in the future, but at the moment, this is the debate um, that I'm seeing. It's not always uh, um, it's not always a debate that's driven by um, courteous exchange of reasons. It's not always a debate driven by you know a more um, calm and reasonable exchange of reasons. But it's a vibrant debate um, anyway, and I think um, we we will see more of this in the yeah. next six years. And it is interesting that you say um, that it is in the American tradition because we're both seeing kind of dynasties in the US <laughs> and vulgar language as well. So yeah, there you go. it's our turn to say. <laughs> there, done that. Uh, We hope it gets better. Well, thank you so much, Nicole. Um, We've spoken to you a lot longer than we intended because it's just so fascinating. So thanks for sharing your, your, um, your views with us on Triple R today. 
Thank you. Have a good morning. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.